Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, mahaben, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories. I'm your host, Betsy Olam, and we have a very special podcast for you today. Thank you for joining us and listening. Today, we are joined by Mark Klein, the Regional Director for the Export-Import Bank of the United States, commonly known as Exim. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Betsy. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is great. So what could be more fitting for our export listeners than a discussion with an all-important U.S. agency that helps drive U.S. export opportunities around the world? So it's a really great uh that we were able to get you here. Um, so we have a lot to talk about regarding who XM is and what they do. But first, um, can you share with us what in your background led you to the Export Import Bank? Oh boy, that's a that's a good that's a good intro. Um, so bef- I've been with XM Bank a little over ten years. Prior to that, I was a banker for 20 years. I always refer to myself as a recovering banker. Um, (laughs) The last 10 years of that uh, 20-year banking uh, history, I was in the international banking realm for three different commercial banks. So I lived and breathed letters of credit, foreign exchange, and I always worked alongside Exim Bank during those 10 years. So 2009 hit, it wasn't fun being a banker anymore during that particular period of time. So I started looking for some other options, uh, reached out to a good friend of mine who is now my boss at Exxon Bank. And I said, uh, I, I don't think I want to be a banker anymore. And he said, well, I got approval to add a full-time employee. How about you being a Fed? And <laughs> wow. a few oh, interviews, few interviews later and, uh, May of 2010, I joined Exxon Bank as a regional director, and to be quite honest, I probably wish I would have done it 10 years before that because it's I'm having that much fun. Oh, man. You know, it's wonderful when anybody can say that about their job. I mean, the job is what you do most of the time, so that's, that's really great. Okay, is Export-Import Bank really a bank? Oh boy, that's that's usually when I when I give a presentation, that's the uh, one of the first things that I cover, is that uh, yeah, the Export Import Bank in the United States, and like you already said, we like to go by Exim, just to avoid the conversation that although we have bank in our name, we're not a bank. We were founded in 1934, peak of the Great Depression, and at that point in time, we had to do more banking stuff. So we actually acted more like a bank when we were first founded, but we're not a bank. People always ask me, what about import? I said, well, we don't do imports either. But (laughs) at the time that we were founded, we were were required to to help companies source product because frankly, in 1934, we weren't making a whole lot of stuff in the United States. So 
we jokingly say that as of right now, we just go by our first name um, because we don't do imports. And for the most part, we don't act like a commercial bank. Okay. All right. Well, that leads us into the discussion of what, what it is and how it supports U.S. exporters. And just take whatever time you need to explain that. Sure. Because it's really important. Sure. So Exum, there again, founded in 1934. We're the official export credit agency for the United States. We're not the first export credit agency in the world. Uh, the, the Brits actually beat us to that. Uh, they founded the Export Credit and Guarantee Department right around World War I. So 1917, 1918, 1919 is when UK Export Finance was born. Uh, we joined a few years later as an export credit agency in 34. Our official first title was the Export Import Bank of Washington, D.C. We've moved on since then. Uh, at the present time, there's about 135 ECAs in the world. So every developed country has a version of Exim Bank. Developing countries are growing Exim Banks. I always say that, that this whole idea of ECA financing is really what makes the world go round. Mm -hmm. And what this export credit agency financing is all about is it's all about access to capital. And it's access to capital that is not readily available in the private sector. So the mission of Exim Bank US and all the other ECAs is to supplement whatever is available in the private sector. And with us, with Exim Bank US, we even have a uh, part of our charter, there's a topic called additionality. And what additionality states is that for any transaction that we're assisting with, we have to show there's not already a solution in the private sector. So we're not competing with U.S. banks. We're not competing with foreign banks. We're helping them do their job better. How would that supports, you, could, yeah. Could you compare it at all to reinsurance in the insurance market, or is it really not the same kind of thing? It's, it can be. Um, there are some cases to where we have an insurance product that acts like a reinsurance product. Mm -hmm. uh, that's going to be kind of in a uh, in the commercial bank world to where they may be confirming a bank letter of credit. We will step in and insure that commercial bank letter of credit. So that's where it kind of gets close to the to the reinsurance. But where we come into play and and how we help U.S. companies, U.S. exporters. And by the way, one of our I talked about our rule of additionality. The other rule is U.S. content. My, I am by my charter, I have to support majority US made product and US made services. So we're all about jobs. Our role is to help US companies export because in doing so, the idea is they're gonna create new jobs. So I talked about this access to capital. The idea there is, is we wanna make sure that US companies, that they have access to working capital to make the products, develop the services, they're going to be exported. But we yeah. also want to make sure that those foreign buyers have access to capital so they have a way to buy the U.S.-made products and services. Let me, uh, let me just go back for just a minute. When you say U.S. content, isn't the figure like 51% Yep, US it's content? just get me, it's get me for our insurance product, and we can kind of dig into that a little deeper as far as what I actually mean by that. Um, but at least 50% on a cost basis. 
Okay. So the way that I, I usually, my example is, is if you're exporting something that your factory cost is $100. So what is your cost before you add in your profit margin? If that's $100, get me halfway there with parts, materials, labor, research development, overhead. I don't care if some of the wiring is made in China. I don't care if the little rubber buttons are made in Vietnam. If it's 50% and above US content, final assembly in the United States and ship from the United States, you're gonna be perfectly fine with me. Then you were saying about the foreign companies, the buyers, how, what is their role in, the, in this kind of transaction? Yeah, so a lot of times what we do, you know, whether it's our export credit insurance or our foreign buyer financing, we want to put a financing structure in place for these foreign buyers because let's face it, in some countries, uh, some markets, the banks are very illiquid. And when you have commercial banks that are illiquid, simple economics 101, when you have a, a very low supply of money, illiquid, that means that the cost of funds is going to be very expensive and very hard to get. So a lot of the, the foreign buyers, they can't, we have it easy here in the U.S. We've got capital all over the place. But in some markets, you know, the, the buyers can't go to their bank to borrow the money to buy something made in the U.S. So they look to the suppliers to provide that type of financing, whether it's a short-term solution under our credit insurance program or if it's a longer term solution under our medium term and long term programs for larger pieces of capital equipment. There again, we don't act as a bank. We work in the in the world of insurance and guarantees, but we, we help arrange that financing so that foreign buyer can, uh, on a very cost effective basis, get access to the capital to buy US made goods. It's, it's wonderful and we want people we want exporters to know about this because this is the way we keep it going and growing the exports. It's really important. And that was the point, of course. <laughs> but um, so let's uh, talk just for a minute about large corporations versus small businesses. Do they all have equal opportunity with XM? They do. So my role as a regional director, and, and just to kind of a little background, there's about 500 employees with Exxon Bank. 480 of those folks are based out of DC. Then you have 20-ish folks like myself that are scattered throughout the country. Our job is to work with the small and medium-sized businesses because frankly, they're the companies that don't know that we exist. Right. Um, they, they don't know that there's these solutions out there. So absolutely small companies, we work with them. We even have some for, for companies that are designated as an SBA size company that they're eligible for SBA services. We actually have a couple specialized programs just for them. So there's no size constraints as far as small, medium, and large, and there's no deal constraints. There's no deal that's too small for us to look at or too large for us to look at. So yeah, we, we work with all size companies. Wow. I think the best way to illustrate what Exim does is to talk about some actual stories from your experience with Exim. Let's talk about some of the products that you've worked with that have be benefited from your services. Let's start. Well, let's start with a large project first, like large equipment or something. Now, you say you personally specialize in small businesses, but do you have any stories about 
equipment or machinery or something like that? I do. So, and, and I'm going to put in a little plug for our, our website for all the listeners out there. It's, uh, it's www.exim, so it's exim.gov. And I'll, when you pull up... I'll, I'll put that on the uh, my webpage when we publish Sure. And, and it's, it's, a, it's what I call, and it's what the IT guys call, it's a robust website. And what robust means in the IT world is means it has a whole lot of content, but it's not the easiest to drive. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell everybody there's, there, we have a really good success story page. And I'm going to talk about a couple of these. But under the um, About tab on our website, you can go to success stories. And we have, we, we have it divided on a state-by-state -state basis. So it starts with Alabama and it goes all the way down the list. And we have a couple uh, success stories for every state. But um, so one of the companies that I work with, they uh, were thinking, you know, large cranes, large lifts. Uh, and they were trying to sell into Argentina. Now, we just reopened. Argentina has, for lack of a better term, Argentina's kind of been a mess for a while. Yeah. Um, the banking sector was not really strong. It's still not great, but I am actually open for business in Argentina right now. And what everybody needs to know is that the, the borrowing rate in Argentina right now, if you are a company going to your bank to borrow money, it's 5% per month. So that's 60% cost of funds on an annualized basis. So there again, that gets back to that whole liquidity and uh, supply and demand. Obviously, the banks don't have a lot of money in Argentina to lend, so they make it very, very expensive. But there are good companies in Argentina. And one of the companies I work with, they had a large order for five or six large cranes. You know, the tr cranes that we see all around town building these large skyscrapers and buildings. Um, Argentinian buyer absolutely positively wanted this U.S.-made product. They couldn't arrange financing at uh, 60%. Who can arrange financing and afford that? So what we were able to do is, is work with that exporter, uh, introduced a lender. Remember, Exxon Bank is, we're not a bank. So we introduced a U.S. lender that was going to be acting as the lender of record, brought them into the equation. They, they did perform their due diligence on the, on the buyer in Argentina. We arranged financing to where if that buyer was trying to borrow those funds in Argentina, 60% cost of funds, and probably the longest repayment term they were going to get is maybe 12 to 18 months because, there again, the banks don't have that much money. They certainly don't want to let that out there for that long. Yeah. So 60% loan, 18-month payback. I was able to arrange financing five years not 12 or 18 months, and my interest rate was a little bit left less than 8%. And that's an all-in cost. That's the U.S. bank making a little money. That's me charging an exposure fee for a five-year Argentine risk. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's also, and all these costs are built into the financing. The U.S. company pays absolutely nothing for this. The attorneys make a little bit of money because we have some in-country loan documentation. So at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the buyer in Argentina, they got a very affordable loan. We charged an exposure fee to protect ourselves and the U.S. bank that is making a loan with a nice interest rate spread. It's a 100% principal and interest guarantee for Exxon Bank. So this is kind of one of those situations to where 
everybody walked away very, very, very happy. Well, sounds like, sounds like a wonderful product for that, that situation. Um, Wow. So now does XM have to have a presence in a country to be able to do a transaction? No, we have, as a matter of fact, we have zero presence in any countries other than the U.S. So we have oh, no oh. one, we have no one staffed outside of the, the U.S. Now we, um, you know, pre-COVID, uh, we do have some folks that they do travel outside of the U.S. We attend trade shows and meet with certain delegations and, and uh, our, our chairman will occasionally travel outside of the U.S. We meet a lot of the foreign buyers. I, I attend probably on an annual basis, probably about eight to 10 trade shows. So mm -hmm. World of Concrete, World of Asphalt, Con Expo, uh, the large pump shows. So I usually meet a lot of these buyers um, and the exporters of these shows. But yeah, Exxon Bank does not, uh, we have no one stationed outside of the United States. Okay, interesting. Um, well, great. All right, let's move on to some other uh, products. I have some here listed that you and I talked about earlier. So I'm just going to throw out a product and you and see if you have a story about it. Based sure. On, based on our conversation before. I think you mentioned solar panels or maybe green technology, uh, green building technology, something like that, green energy. Uh, love to hear some stories about that. It's one of my we, interests. Yeah. So we we actually have some folks in DC that, and one of our initiatives is the renewable energy. Um, so, you know, solar panels, wind turbines, basically all the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the green energy that, that we all read and hear about. So many, many projects. I've worked with a couple of the companies that actually produce the solar panels. Um, I've worked with a couple of the integrators and the integrators are basically the ones that take the, they're, they're a U.S. entity, but they, they source the solar panel, the wiring, the batteries, the technology that makes them work, the actual structure that these solar panels are mounted on before they go into a solar farm. Um, so there's been, you know, numerous uh, solar projects that we've worked on. And these are the larger ones. So these are typically the projects that are over, you know, 10, 15, 20 million dollars. Um, they, they, they work basically the same as that example that I used for Argentina, except that instead of a five-year term for a renewable energy product, we can actually go up to an 18-year term. Wow. So we can really, we can really stretch out that repayment cycle um, for these companies much longer than what they could get in country. Um, um, so, yeah, no, that is fantastic. And putting COVID aside for a minute, is the green energy industry, and I know it's broad, is that growing and developing in the U.S. from your point of view? Is it? I think it's, I think it's growing. I think it will always be growing. And I think that is a fantastic thing, but you do have to understand that whether or not it's on the, the front burner or the back burner is, is tied to the price of oil. Right. So when oil is a hundred dollars a barrel and it's expensive, well, yeah. we start looking at the green options a lot. But when oil starts doing, you know, actually in May and in June, when it dipped into the negative 
figures to where these oil companies were actually paying you to take the oil off their hands. Yeah. Um, I think green energy, at least it kind of maybe slips to the back burner a little bit just because everybody's thinking, well, oil and, and your traditional oil, coal, gasoline is, is it's so inexpensive that it just doesn't make a lot of this green projects cost effective. You know, um, that is the reality of it. I think it's really sad personally. And I hope that in the future that the U.S. has a mindset that appreciates the, how important it is to keep going and growing green energy despite the cheap costs of oil right now. But I'm just giving you my personal opinion. Well, and my, you know, my, regardless of, of your, uh, you know, political stance, you know, eventually we're not going to have a choice. We're going to get to a point to where, um, you know, green energy is, is it's going to, it's going to be the only option if right. we want to keep, you know, spinning right. around. And the U S it would be great if the U S is on the forefront you know, there. So there's right. my soapbox. So, all right, now then, <laughs> let's talk about some smaller businesses uh, that uh, just to kind of spread around the stories. Um, sure. You you mentioned something that I thought was really fun and interesting, and that's the craft beers. You know, I think of Kentucky as whiskey, but you mentioned craft beers, so I want to hear about that. Sure, and I yeah I've got a I've got a couple good a uh, couple good stories. One that uh, it, so I I am a, a I'm a Kentucky boy, uh, boy born and raised. So yes, bourbon is is very near and dear to my heart. Um, but yeah, craft beers is is something that um, I've seen a lot of activity. I, I work with a lot of craft brewers, and it's typically it's funny how the the conversation usually it goes down the same path to where uh, in, the, in the first time I met with Craft Brew, it actually surprised me with the markets that they were, that they were selling to. Um, and it's typically the Caribbean mm -hmm. is, a, is a hot market for U.S. exports of craft beer, and Europe is a hot market for U.S. exports of craft beer. Now, the Caribbean I get because the whole story there is that uh, U.S. citizens love going to the Caribbean. It's a pretty short flight to get there. We love our cruise ships. And frankly, you can only drink so much Red Stripe beer. And the, U <laughs> and the U.S. citizens, they want to be able to enjoy some of the craft beers that they've gotten used to back in their home cities to where these microbreweries are, are all over. They like the, the IPAs. They like the stouts. They like the, 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 the different kind of wheat beers that they're used to. So these craft brewers are, are exporting to the Caribbean so that these U.S. folks that are on vacation have something to drink. The, uh, the, the European one is a really neat story because I've even asked a couple of guys, I said, come on, Europe, that's, that's where they, you know, centuries and centuries ago, they created beer. You know, they, that's yeah. where beer was born because the water quality was so bad that you couldn't drink the water that basically you were feeding your children, you know, beer because at least there's a fermentation process to where, you know, to where it's not going to kill you like the water was. But the difference is, is that our craft beer that we make here in the U.S., the, you know, the pumpkin beers and the lavender beers and the blueberry beers, they don't make those in Europe. 
Europe is, you know, you could, you know, the best Pilsner, the best lagers, probably the best dark beers in the world right there in Europe. But those, those unique pumpkin beers, lavender beers, watermelon beers, they, that's something that is really taking off in Europe. They've, they've really grown a taste for it there again. I guess you can't drink Heineken all the time. Um, so there, these, these different craft beers are, are coming. And, the, and what we do with these folks is, unlike that example I used with Argentina when we're looking at capital equipment, this kind of comes into what I call the bridge financing. To where those distributors in Europe, they just want 60 to 90 days of, of, of supplier credit. They, you know, the product's going to be on the water for 30 days. They want to have maybe an additional 30 or 60 days to, you know, take possession of it, inventory it, maybe pre-sell it, maybe start delivering it a little bit. Um, yeah. So that we step in there, not really arranging long-term financing with the bank, but we put export credit insurance in place that basically tells the U.S. company it's okay to give your distributor in Belgium 60 days to pay for it because with this insurance in place, if for whatever reason they don't pay you, the United States government will. In some cases, can you get 90 days credit or is that... Yeah, I can, for, if you're selling to a distributor, I can insure up to 180 day terms. Oh, wow. That's, I don't recommend that you start there, but if, if for whatever reason, and especially with it, with a consumable like beer or, you know, almonds or, yeah, no, but, but if it's a, if it's a large, you know, if it's a, a water pump or, you know, sump pumps or things like that, that it just, it takes a little while to put those in inventory and sell those, yeah. um, you know, something that doesn't go bad. Um, I think that, you know, longer terms there again, I don't recommend it, but it, at least it makes a little more sense. Sure. Sure. Um, let's see. You had mentioned pet food. And the pet animals. food's one. Uh, I'm going to, I've got another, I've got another story. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you this one. Oh, throw it in. It, it's, it is so it's, it is a, it's 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 one of those perfect kind of storms that all came together. So I was working with a company. Uh, they they used to be on our our success story page, but we've kind of we we try to rotate those. So this company manufactures leather shoelaces, about as simple as a product as you can think of as oh shoelaces. Goodness. Yeah. But this particular company, there's there's very few companies left in the world that make leather shoelaces. This one that I was working with here in Kentucky, um, they're world renowned for the quality of their shoelaces. And I always say, you can tell if you got a pair of shoes that didn't have these shoelaces in them because the first time you try to tie a really good knot, the, the, the strap breaks on you. So they'll, you know how that is and how frustrating that is. So this company makes leather shoelaces. Well, you know, going along fine. This was actually a fourth or fifth generation company. Um, we don't make a lot of shoes in the United States anymore. No. So what happened was a lot of their customers moved to the Dominican Republic. They moved to Vietnam. They moved to Taiwan because that's where they, China, that's where the shoes are being made. Yeah. So this company went from most of their business being domestic to where now they're, they're still selling to the same customers, Wolverine, Sperry's. They're still selling to the same companies, but these companies are now, manufacturing in the Dominican Republic. This created a major problem for this company because number one, 
they're selling on open account terms. So they were giving their buyers 60 to 90 days to pay for it. Yeah. Um, they were concerned with the risk. And frankly, their bank was concerned with the risk because U.S. banks do not like lending against foreign accounts receivables. They'll, they'll lend against domestic account receivables all day long. But foreign accounts receivables are a no-no. So not only was this company experiencing what they deemed as, as uh, foreign buyer risk, but their bank, all of a sudden, their ability to, to have access to working capital to grow their product, their bank was not willing to provide that because these their entire receivable base was foreign accounts receivable. So I came in with our export credit insurance solution, mitigated the company's risk, my company's risk, because now they knew that if they didn't get paid, uh, they would basically come to us and we would pay them. Their bank was happy because now they we've taken that foreign buyer receivable, we've turned that into a U.S. federal government domestic account receivable. Well, they'll they'll lend against that all day long. Right. So with just with this simple export credit insurance, we were able to basically save this company that was really at a crossroads as to what they were going to do because they their entire customer base was now outside of the, the, the country and their, their bank was really limited as far as what they could do for them. So we were able to um, put the insurance in place. As a result, their exports grew. Uh, they grew to a point to where we were able to put a working capital solution. We helped their bank increase that working capital that they were providing to them for their exports. And it grew to the point that they, they were actually able to bring some of the, they had a little bit of manufacturing that they were doing in Mexico and a little bit in China. They actually brought that manufacturing back to the United States because of the success of their business. So I'm not going to take all credit for that, but you know, the, it, it was definitely, they, uh, this company was definitely at a crossroads before we put the, uh, the export credits uh, insurance solution in place for them. That is a good story. That's a really good story. Leather shoelaces. Who knew that that, you know, you could. Uh, I was thinking of my Sperry Topsiders I wore uh, a number of years ago. <laughs> I'm sure that that was. That, if, the, really if, the leather, if the leather shoelace had lasted forever, that came from this company that I worked with. That's amazing. Now, uh, do you have a number of customers who are long-term customers, or is this normally something that helps businesses get going with? with you know, it's, a, it's a good question, and yes and no. So there are some customers that we have worked with. And, and I'm going to, you know, the, as far as that, uh, the, that, that example in Argentina that I gave you, mm -hmm. that's something that we're always going to continue to work with those customers because there really isn't a, a private sector solution out there. So those are always, we're always going to maintain those relationships, yeah. but on the export credit insurance side, there's roughly 34 to 35 private sector companies that do trade credit insurance. We're just the government flavor as far as that goes. And there again, you know, we're filling a gap. So a lot of the companies that we work with, small businesses, not exporting a lot, they could be medium to larger size companies that they only, that they have a lot of exports, but they're only looking at insuring a select few. Maybe they, they're a global exporter, but they just want to protect 
uh, all the business they're doing in Latin America or all, maybe all the business they're doing in West Africa. Um, those either not a whole lot of exports going on or limited buyers that they want to insure. That typically falls into my world because the private sector insurers, um, they're kind of interested more in the big numbers. So in the perfect world, and people kind of, you know, they, they look at me funny when I say this, I hope that every single company that I work with on the export credit insurance, I hope at some point in time they leave me. I, I want them to break up with me at some point in time because what that means is that they've been so successful in exporting and getting used to using foreign accounts receivable insurance and growing their export base to where that number gets big enough to where the private sector steps in and provides a solution. And typically when that number gets big enough, the private sector, their solution may be a little bit more cost effective than ours. And we yeah. do that on purpose. We, we intentionally, when we get to, when that, we intentionally price ourselves out of the market um, for the simple fact that that way the private sector is encouraged to step in. So uh, yeah. I do have long-term customers, but ideally, I would love to see every customer that I work with on the export credit insurance side, I would love to see them grow their business to the point to where there's a better solution than me out there. Good, good. That's, that's a very healthy uh, uh, program. Uh, and, and I understand that completely. Uh, I just want to ask you, and we're all assuming and praying that COVID ends sooner than later, and it will end you know, eventually we'll get it under control but what what are the most significant issues with covid right now as far as it affects xm we're very busy um is is the cuz as you you know we are a we are a risk mitigation tool so when everything that is going on in the world right now and companies are closing their doors at least temporarily you know and that's going on everywhere um you know the 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 global risk perception has increased you know so we're kind of a we're a counter our, our business counter cyclical when everybody in the world loves everybody in the world my phone doesn't ring that much because there's not a perceived risk out there but in 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, our phones were ringing off the hook because that was when doing business was perceived to be very risky. And then, you know, 2012, 2013, we recovered. Business was, was doing very well globally. There wasn't, you know, a Brexit. There was a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a kick in our business. You know, there's, there's yeah. tip, you know, Turkey, Egypt, things happen to right. where, a little bit of interest comes about, but uh, you know, typically for the most part, when things are running pretty smoothly, um, we're not as busy. But February, March, uh, we're very busy because everybody is suddenly realizing, wow, we're doing business outside of the U.S. and maybe we need to put some insurance in place because there's a real good chance that that some of these customers, we love them. They've been doing business with us for 10 years, yeah. but something might happen to them where they can't pay us. That is fascinating. So, so yeah, we've, we've been, uh, that's, that's the immediate uh, result of COVID for us is that uh, we, we find ourselves very busy. Well, I'm happy for you. <laughs> so um, lastly, 
this has been this is such a great conversation, but I know you're busy. So what I did is I posted on LinkedIn and Facebook to let listeners know that they could send in some questions for you today. And I have a two-parter here from Scott Sigmund uh, that I'd like to give you a brief. Sure. Time. The first part, he says, asks, what minimum range or scale of export transactions are ideal for a company that has never worked with Exim Bank backed, you know, sales before? You know, there really isn't a minimum. I, I have, I've worked with companies to where I have put a policy in place for them. And that first invoice that we insured was less than $10,000. Um, okay. So there is no, there's no minimum transaction size. And I can always start a policy with just one foreign buyer. So there is no real minimum threshold uh, that we can work with. Well, I hope people hear that. That's really important. Then uh, the second part of his question, in cases where a company has not worked with Exim Bank support for their exports before, who all in the company would usually be involved in working with your agency? Example, like the sales department, marketing, finance, traffic, you know, executive management. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's typically, and this is, this is a a really good story. It's typically the, it's usually the sales guys that reach out to me first. Okay. Because the sales guys, if most U S companies, their way of doing business outside the U S it's either pay me cash up front or go get a letter of credit. Open account terms is not, the go-to for U.S. companies, but that's what the sales guys really like because, boy, if you're a sales guy, um, you know, asking cash up front from your customer versus, hey, I'll ship you the product and you pay me 90 days later, that's that's an easier sell. So usually it's the sales guys that call me. Okay. We'll loop, we loop in the finance guys because the first thing the finance guys are worried about is just like my company that I, the leather is they're worried about the fact that these foreign accounts receivable, number one, that's risky. Number two, my bank's not going to like it. And number three, my day sales outstanding is going to blow up because suddenly instead of getting paid up front, I'm granting 16 to 90 day terms when domestically we give companies maybe 15 or 30 day terms. Right. So it's usually, it's usually the sales guys and the finance guys. I, I, I jokingly say that when I visit with companies and they walk me into the boardroom, sales guys sit on one side of the, the, the table, finance guys on the other, cause those guys never get along that well. Um, I can kind of walk through a scenario of export credit insurance and I can get the sales guys and the finance guys smiling at the exact same time. And that's not the easiest thing to do. No, it's not. That must be very satisfying. Well, I want to thank Scott for those questions. Those are really good questions. Very and, good. Uh, I wonder if I need to correct something I said before we close. I called it whiskey from Kentucky. You don't call it whiskey in Kentucky, do you? Yeah, well, that, that's, <laughs> that's another podcast where we can talk about that. But uh, so... Yeah, every every bourbon is a whiskey, but not every whiskey is a bourbon. Right. There's there are specific rules to qualify you as a bourbon. So Maker's Mark is a bourbon. Jack Daniels 
is a whiskey. Sipping whiskey, it, right. Yep. And it all depends on the the percentage of the ingredients that are going into it. How is it aged? Bourbon, it has to be a, a one-time used uh, charred oak barrel or whiskey. It, the, there's no restrictions as far as how many times they use the barrel. So yeah, that's the best way to do it is, is uh, every, every bourbon is a whiskey, but not every whiskey is a bourbon. Thank you for correcting that for me. I didn't want anybody to be irritated with me for misstating. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Mark, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your being here. I think this was a great discussion. I enjoyed it. If we had more time, I could, I would go on and on for hours. <laughs> well, we may have to do it again, but sure. Uh, I, I really wanted people to be aware of who you are and what you do. And I will post the website on there. So uh, they'll be able to access it and, and review all that good information on that. There is, there's, there's a couple other, just a real quick, there's a couple other tools on our website, Betsy, that I think is really valuable. Okay. There's one that's under our uh, tools for exporters. It's our country limitation schedule. Okay. And that country limitation schedule is a, it's basically a spreadsheet. It's every country that you could dream of exporting to in the world. And we detail if we're open for coverage or we close for coverage. And it's a really good tool to have at your fingertips. Just obviously everybody knows that you're not going to be selling to North Korea. You're not going to sell to, to Syria. You're not going to sell to Cuba. Those are the no-brainers. Right. But then there's other countries on there that you can sell to. I'm going to use Venezuela as an example. You can sell to Venezuela. I cannot do anything as far as insuring or guaranteeing any transactions into Venezuela because of the credit risk involved. It's even too risky for me, and we're the most aggressive risk-taking agency on the planet. It's right. too risky for us. So it's a real good tool to know exactly you know, what countries we're open for business in, what countries we aren't. And my suggestion is, is if you're trying to do business in Venezuela, and there's some business to be had in Venezuela, um, if the U.S. government is not willing to take credit risk in Venezuela, I'm not going to recommend that a small business take credit risk in Venezuela. Correct. It's a good, good tool to have. Absolutely. And what tab is that under on your website? That's going to be under our across the top. It's going to be tools for exporters. Yes. And under that, you're going to see it's called a country limitation schedule. And we update that probably, oh, five or six times a year. Okay. Um, good. Good. All right. Well, I'll have the website there and people can really explore it uh, and, and uh, good information. So uh, before we close, I just want to say, give a little word to our listeners here. We'd love to get keep this conversation going about this episode, and we're also really happy to have more, you know, entertain more general discussions. So please reach out to me on exportstoriespodcast.com. You can go to the contact page or ask questions or post comments on the episode page. And I'm happy to, to post those and share those with our listeners. We are also on Twitter. We are creating a community of exporters here, so please reach out and chat. And Mark, thank you again for being here, and uh, it, it was really enjoyable discussion. 
I, I enjoyed it as well. And, and feel free to, uh, if we need to do a, uh, an Exim Bank 2.0 version, I'd be happy to do that. Great. I, I will definitely remember that. And thank you so much. You have a great day. You too. Thank you, Betsy. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 